Hello there. Going through a divorce? Considering one? Sorry to hear that. But here you are. Welcome to Splitsville. You'll find Splitsville to be a pretty unique place. A new world, really, with its own rules, its own expectations, and in many ways, its own language. But don't worry. You have a knowledgeable guide along the way. A family law attorney with three decades of experience under her belt. And now, here she is. Your host and guide, Lee Sellers. Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Welcome to Splitsville. I'm your host and guide, Lee Sellers, founder of Touchstone Family Law. And in this episode, I'll be answering another question that many newcomers to Splitsville have. What is a custody evaluation? So let's dive in. So on today's episode, we are back with Dr. Sean Knuth. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you today? It's good to see you again. Uh, it's good to see you too. I feel like we could just have you regularly on. There's always more that I want to talk about. I'm just glad that you know what might be interesting. Well, I think that everybody out there that's going through family court situations is um, really presented with a lot of emotional and mental health issues and, and conflicts. And I think that it's an interesting intersection between our two fields. So I think we could both sit around and talk about this for much longer than anybody else would want to listen to us. But tonight, I wanted to ask you to talk to us about the various evaluations that we often confront when we have custody cases particularly, but there's other family court cases as well. But I know I have people that come in that will just say, I want you to go and get an evaluation of my spouse. I want a court-ordered evaluation. And they've heard the phrase, but they don't really know what it is that they're specifically asking for. So we always have to kind of break it down. But what kind of evaluations do you as a provider, actually find yourself being asked to perform and that you routinely perform in family court cases? Well, my my initial response to that is people should not feel bad for not knowing. Um, I think a lot of psychologists don't really have a firm grasp on how psychology can help court proceedings. And that's that, that's nothing against those psychologists. It's just not a particularly common area specialty. So in backing up a little bit and thinking about the type of work that psychologists could do that could aid a court, um, what we're really thinking about or what we'll talk about today are evaluations, psychological evaluations that are conducted by a psychologist under court order, where an evaluator, a psychologist, has been appointed by the court to conduct the evaluation. And they're functioning as what's called a court-appointed expert witness. That's different from, you know, an attorney's client going out and getting an evaluation on their own. And, you know, thinking about the differences between those two, it's pretty straightforward as to why the, the perceived objectivity is important. Somebody would not be appointed to conduct an evaluation if they weren't, hopefully they wouldn't be appointed, if they weren't appropriately credentialed and qualified and trained to apply the field of psychology to a court setting, more specifically to child custody litigation setting. Child custody litigation, you know, the term that, that people might hear as they're going through this process is the best interest standard. 
Um, and you could probably explain that a little bit better than I could. So correct me uh, where, where I'm falling down a bit. But the best interest standard is the standard that guides the motivation for court decisions, the best interest of the children. So when you've got a, a court case and child custody litigation, you've got a plaintiff and a defendant, and you've got children as a third party, essentially, that are involved in the case. And the judge, or the trier of fact, which is usually the judge, is put in a position where they have to make decisions on the best interest of the children, irrespective of what may or may not be in the best interest uh, of, the, of the parties, of the adults. Mm -hmm. And so when a psychologist gets involved, especially here in, in Mecklenburg County in North Carolina, they are appointed to conduct an evaluation that will help the judge, and as I mentioned, you'll see him referred to or her referred to as a trier of fact, make decisions in that, in that regard. Mm -hmm. And so the evaluations themselves can take many different forms, but they are all designed to help the judge make those decisions in that respect. And so briefly talk about the difference between when you are, to the extent there are differences, but the difference between when you're doing an evaluation because a judge has ordered you this to be done, they've ordered people or person to submit to a particular evaluation versus um, me calling you and saying, I think that I have a problem or I think my spouse has a problem. I've been noticing certain symptoms and I want to bring them in and I want them to have an evaluation. What's the difference between private people coming in and seeking your expertise and your opinion and a judge doing it? Is there a difference to the process? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in thinking about work that a psychologist would do for a court when the psychologist has been appointed by the judge to conduct the work, it's really an issue of whether the evaluees are consenting to the treatment or whether they're ordered not to treatment, whether they're consenting to the evaluation or whether they're being ordered to participate. And the reason that's important is um, I think we all, all of us who work with, work in this field, who work with individuals going through child custody litigation, we have all heard clients say, man, my ex can just, snowball anybody and convince them that they're great. And um, if they go in and talk to somebody, they'll come out with a clean bill of health. I need to be able to talk to them also. Mm -hmm. Well, when a psychologist is appointed to conduct this evaluation, one of the, the reasons for that is that it allows the psychologist, it gives the psychologist some mechanism by which they're allowed to talk to third parties. We, we call that in my field, we call that collateral sources of information. And so we're not just relying on self-report. Now, conversely, if someone were to go in and seek out a psych eval privately, let's say, for example, a, a mom um, wanted to get evaluated. They went to see somebody privately. The dad, the other party, has no, they're not compelled to participate. They have no obligation to participate. Um, the The person doing the evaluation might not be trained and, and appropriately sort of educated and knowledgeable to assess for, for issues in child custody situations. And it just, it, it codifies the process in a way that ensures that not only are the evaluees, you know, not only do they understand what they're getting into, but their role is delineated, right? The court says, these are the things you have to do. These are the things that your ex has to do. 
these are the things the evaluator has to do. Here's how it's all going to go down. Um, and so in some respects, I mean, it's very scary sounding, a forensic psychological evaluation or a child mm -hmm. custody evaluation. Uh, but the, the way that my field has decided is best to approach this is a way that allows the evaluator to give the court useful information, but also that maximally respects the essentially the privacy of the uh, and the confidentiality of the evaluees. Mm -hmm. um, because the forensic issue is really the key, is that you're not just taking what, and then let's just again talking about custody. So you're not just taking perhaps mom or dad's opinion or statements at face value because you are allowed to, again, collect these collateral resources or interview these other people to really vet what you're being told. That's right. Uh, and an evaluator that that is appropriately qualified to do this work will know how to relate all that information back to the issue at hand. So a, a great example of this is the issue of diagnosis. Everybody thinks they can diagnose everybody else and, oh, my ex is a narcissist or my ex is borderline personality disorder or my ex has sex addiction or whatever the diagnosis they think they might have, the evaluator is in a good position to really collect information from as many different sources as they can and then relate it back to the best interest standard. Mm -hmm. There is no diagnosis um, in, in the DSM, that's our, our book of, of diagnoses, of psychiatric diagnoses, there's no diagnosis that precludes somebody automatically from parenting. You could have any diagnosis in there and still potentially be a good parent. And the converse of that is true. You could be completely diagnosis-free and be a terrible parent. Mm -hmm. And so the evaluator is in a position to not evaluate to a diagnosis, but to evaluate to the questions that the court wants answered. Now, what is the difference between a forensic psychological evaluation and a parental fitness examination? So what you'll find um, is a lot of, of confusion on what all this stuff should be called. Mm -hmm. And I'll just kind of lay it out the way that we look at it as a profession. And I'll preface this conversation or this diatribe I'm about to go mm -hmm. off on by saying that don't worry about what you call it. Don't worry about any of that stuff. Just worry about you as, as a plaintiff or a defendant or the court or an attorney. Worry about what information you want to know. It's the evaluator's job to determine if that's a thing, if it's not a thing, how to evaluate to it. And so a, a psychological evaluation is a, is, is a series of, of data collection events, um, interviews or psychological testing or review of records, speaking with collateral sources that are designed to answer questions about a person's functioning. For example, if your car isn't working or if you're having an issue with your car, you take it into the mechanic. You don't take it in and say, hey, is my car broken? You'll go in and you'll say, hey, I've got an issue when I turn right at speed or there's a rattling. And the mechanic will know how to take that information and use it to investigate what's going on with your car. So what a court can do is draft an appointment order or ask an evaluator, hey, there's allegations of substance use on the part of dad. Are, are they legitimate? 
Do they affect his ability to parent or not? What kind of treatment would be needed or not? Now, our profession generally calls that a substance use evaluation, Mm -hmm. but you could call it whatever you want to call it. The fact of the matter is that those questions that the, the judge delineated are the questions that drive the evaluation. And so what's really important when somebody is thinking, wow, and this is, again, when the, maybe before you get to an attorney, but when you're thinking, I need to have my spouse evaluated or I really want to get my spouse evaluated, what they really need to be thinking about when they come in to have these communications with an attorney or with a therapist or, or however they're doing it is saying, this is my concern about the other parent. This is my worry about the other parent. I, I need to know if this is going to put my child at risk when it's when this person is taking care of them. It's, they really need to be understanding and thinking about what is frightening them or what is concerning them. Right, with respect to their ability to parent the child. Correct. Um, these evaluations uh, are not another place to litigate the marriage, um, mm-hmm. to, to prove or to demonstrate, oh, I was right in leaving this person or they were crazy, don't you agree with me? It all needs to be related back to that best interest standard of of how it relates to their ability to care for the children. And that's why I know some people are resistant when someone is saying the other side, for example, has made a motion for a psychological evaluation or, you know, they've moved on the appropriate role for an uh, role for an expert. And, you know, I'm sitting there trying to explain to my client, no, they're not trying to prove you're crazy. No, we're not you know, seeking to have you committed. But it's really kind of scary when people see the paperwork and they're just thinking, what is this? And sometimes, to be fair, the legal motions don't even outline very clearly what it is that you're looking for in the other person. So I think it's good for people to understand we don't, the court system isn't necessarily asking for an evaluation to prove whether somebody has or doesn't have an issue, a mental health issue. Right. That's not really usually the question. The question is, is there something that's going to prevent them from properly taking care of themselves or of a child? Yeah, and you can think about all of these evaluations as having three sort of core components. What are the strengths of a parent and what are the weaknesses of a parent? And then what are the needs of the kids? And evaluations like that could be limited to what are the strengths and weaknesses of this parent as it relates to substance use and what are the needs of the kids as it relates to substance use. Or it could be a just a broad evaluation of generally what are the needs of this kid and how is this parent meeting and failing to meet those needs? And most importantly, what can be done to improve it? So who's going to be involved in a evaluation, and this would be, I know there's no such thing as a typical one, but typically, are you going to, um, is an evaluator going to see both parents and the children? Are they going to see everybody in the family or just see the parents and rely on third parties to talk about the children? How does it typically work? It really depends on what the court's curious about. I, you know, I mentioned a couple times now this idea of a substance use evaluation. You can conduct a substance use evaluation and offer some opinions related to parenting in general without evaluating the kids. Within our field, however, uh, it is, it's not 
appropriate to offer an opinion on a specific child without having evaluated that specific child and without having seen the child in interaction with the parent. So I think that the prototypical evaluation that we hear about is a child custody evaluation. That's probably the best defined of the evaluation types that you see in family court. And those are an evaluation of, generally speaking, an evaluation of parent A and parent B and all of the, the dependent children and how they all can, can work together and the, the implications of parenting the kids and the parents' strengths and weaknesses and, and what might prohibit them from parenting. And they're very complex. Mm-hmm. But in that case, everybody would be evaluated. Sometimes a court says, no, I'm not interested in evaluating sort of the custody dynamic between party A and party B. I just would like an evaluation of party A. And I would like to know their strengths and weaknesses as a parent as it relates to these kids. And in that situation, you would, you would evaluate the parent and the two children. Um, sometimes that's referred to as a parenting capacity evaluation. That's the mm-hmm. phrase that most people have heard. Again, don't worry about what you call it worry about the questions that you want to ask. Right. So in a parent, let's just say somebody was mentioning a capacity evaluation. Really the question there is, does this person have the capacity to parent or be, I guess, responsible for children yeah. in that particular case, whether it's a three-year-old or a 10-year-old or mm-hmm. you're going to tailor it to what they would have to parent. Absolutely. And and hopefully the evaluation will recognize that everybody functioning as they are today isn't necessarily how they will function tomorrow or next week. And so offering some opinions on what potentially could be problematic, um, what could potentially be a strength of a parent. You know, these, these evaluations need to address not just weaknesses, but also strengths and offer some some professional opinions on, okay, for example... You know, this dad is parenting this 12-year-old girl fine right now, but he's a little socially awkward and not comfortable talking about puberty. Uh, And so, you know, that's something to keep in mind. Maybe identify a a female family member or somebody, or maybe the the dad's a rock star at it, but Mm -hmm. the girl is is uncomfortable for whatever reason. You know, kind of heading off of those issues. Um, what are some of the issues, so we like specific issues where um, you've been asked to do an evaluation to be of assistance to the court? So we've talked about substance abuse being something that is rather commonly a concern where a court might need an objective evaluation of, of whether or not some this factor was going to involve. What are some other kind of common issues or concerns where the fields intersect? Well, I think that some common flavors of evaluation, substance use is one of them, alcohol use, drug use, issues of what we call relocation, mm-hmm. where one party is saying, look, I'm going to take the kids and move in with my cousin in Wyoming. You know, the, the, there's some issues with that. And, and an evaluation can help provide information to a judge that might be useful. Uh, allegations of intimate partner violence or domestic violence, mm-hmm. um, an evaluator can help with that. If children are medically fragile or special needs, um, or if there have been allegations of sexual abuse or physical abuse, and the evaluator isn't necessarily going to go in and collect legal evidence and make a determination of abuse or not, 
But those types of issues are the types of issues that that sort of confuse or muddy the waters of these cases in court. Mm -hmm. And an evaluator uh, can potentially provide some clarity. What about cultural differences and how that makeup impacts parenting? Is that something that's going to be in the wheelhouse of the type of evaluations that you do? Absolutely. You know, as an evaluator, as a psychologist, uh, I'm charged by my my ethical documents to be aware of uh, of cultural differences and having knowledge of those. And it doesn't necessarily need to be knowledge ahead of time, but you need to be able to understand where everybody's coming from when they when they parent. And when you say cultural differences. It's not necessarily, okay, well, mom's from Guatemala and dad's from Finland. What are parents like in Finland versus Guatemala? You know, it it could just be familial cultural differences, understanding Mm -hmm. where people are coming from um, and how they're applying that to parenting. And as we all can imagine, there can be a lot of of friction between two parents, even if they grew up on two different sides of the same small town uh, Mm -hmm. because of of cultural differences in their upbringing. And there's... Two specific ones I was going to ask you to speak to. One is Munchausen, a situation where we're trying to figure out whether or not a child really needs the level of assistance and care they're getting or whether or not somehow a parent has a psychological disorder that is sort of what's fueling all of the doctor's appointments and things. Um, Can you talk a little bit more, uh, talk a little bit about those particular concerns? Sure. Um, so, you know, what you refer to Munchausen's or Munchausen by proxy is, is not a DSM diagnosis. For those unfamiliar, Munchausen by proxy is is a way of describing, for example, a, a parent who benefits psychologically, emotionally, or has a need to have a, a sick child um, or a sick other person. That's what the by, by proxy means. Mm-hmm. It could be a child, it could be a elderly relative, you know, whatever it is. And that's uh, that's a component of a lot of these child custody evaluations is the evaluator is in a good position to look into all aspects of that. Is one parent seeking appropriate treatment for their kids or inappropriate treatment for their kids? And then another layer of complexity on that is, does that parent believe it's appropriate or not? Right. Mm-hmm. And then a layer on top of that is how is that affecting the child? Um, does the child start to believe that they're sick or ill or, or have psychological difficulties that aren't there? Are they being engendered in the child? It's hard to know. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's absolutely a, sort of a common. In fact, I would say that's pretty common sort of under undercurrent in a lot of child custody evaluations is a, a belief by one party that the other party is seeking out more treatment than is warranted or not enough treatment. And if you think about the dynamics of a, of a divorcing couple, it, it completely makes sense. If you've mm-hmm. got two parties that are, that are diametrically opposed and then they separate, party A, who might have always thought that the child needed more help, is going to react strongly in one direction and get the child even more help. Mm-hmm. And then party B, who's always been resistant to that, is going to potentially resist super strongly in the other direction and say, ah, oh, you're fine. You don't need anything. Mm-hmm. And that kind of conflict uh, is what 
usually brings families to child custody evals too. Right, because what you're trying to answer for a judge in a situation like that is, do we have a situation where you're just simply looking at parenting style differences where, you know, one parent tends to believe in therapy and one doesn't? Is it just a distinction between the way they would choose to raise their children and they can't align? Or is it something, you know, because that has an impact on the children, of course, as well. When the parents are really far apart on any issue, it's going to impact the children. But is it more serious where it's actually driven by something where it's going to have a more negative one, like you're actually seeking out treatment that definitely isn't needed or exaggerating a condition to, like you said, get special treatment or get more attention or, or things that are really beyond what the child needs that could have an impact. And sure. there's a big difference because the courts are having yeah. to deal with parenting differences every day. Absolutely. And another aspect to that that adds some confusion is, is sometimes what we see is parent A is is highly motivated to pursue treatment because they believe that parent B is maltreating the kid. Mm-hmm. And so, God, we got to find it. We got to find it. I know in my heart that that this is happening. And it may be correct. Mm-hmm. It may not be correct. I don't know. But that's one of the things that an evaluator is in a good position to help a court with. And does the age of the child make it more challenging? Or does the evaluation kind of work regardless? Well, um, they're all challenging regardless. They're just challenging in different ways, depending on the age and the number of children. Number of children is is key, isn't it? Another one that I think we see in the court system that you don't really see as much outside of it, so I think it's more of an evaluation that's specific for court cases, is parental alienation. Hmm. Can you speak to that type of an evaluation? Well, that also is at the core of any child um, custody evaluation. When you're evaluating two parents and the kids in one big evaluation and you're going to offer an opinion, but when, it, when a psychologist is going to offer an opinion to a judge on the parent's ability to parent the kids, one of the things that the psychologist generally should be able to address is how good is parent A at fostering a relationship between the kids and parent B? Even if parent A thinks parent B is an asshole, mm-hmm. pardon my language, are they still okay at, at supporting that relationship? And sort of the, the the lack of being able to support that is what people usually refer to when they say parental alienation. And so that's always part of almost every child custody evaluation, just being able to assess that. If you have an attorney working with a parent and there's an evaluation being um, ordered you're going to have attorneys reviewing the orders, trying to make sure that the the court order that's is eventually given to the the evaluator says what the judge wanted it to say, covers all of the bases. But if you don't have an attorney and you're you're representing yourself, how do they know that the order is actually going to be covering all of the bases equally on both sides of the field? Does an evaluator get a say? as to whether or not the order has holes in it? Well, as the evaluator, when I'm given an order, my first responsibility is to review that order and and to look to make sure it says what it needs to say, that that it covers who pays for the evaluation, who's responsible for doing what, 
And if, if um, an evaluee or, or if a party is not represented, that just adds a layer of complexity. There's an organization called AFCC. They have some great information for pro se litigants. And they are one of the organizations that publishes aspirational guidelines for child custody evaluators. So they are on top of making sure that people have the information they need in order to conduct helpful reliable, useful evaluations. Well, and I know as an attorney that sometimes the reason you're having to request the evaluation is because the other side does not have an attorney. And they, you know, and that may be why a court wants an objective evaluator because they're trying to make sure they have the information they need to make the decision that they are mandated by statute to make. And if they're worried that there's um, a deficiency on one side or the other of the room, and they're not going to be able to get the information they need to decide about these children. You know, that is a tool that the judges have because they can even order an evaluation on their own motion if they mm-hmm. think it's necessary for them to do their job. Right. And so for us, it's, it, you know, if you've got two attorneys in the case and an evaluator, I feel like the clients can be pretty well informed about <laughs> what's going on. They've got um, someone to speak to. They've, they've got somebody who's got their back and who can answer their questions. But I think it does become more complex if one side or both do not have any legal representation in the process. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, from an evaluator standpoint, it, it's a lot it can be a lot trickier. It's certainly possible. Well, we'll put a link to the resource that you were just talking about in the show notes. So if you're Great. listening to it, go back and look at the show notes and we'll have a link where you can actually go check into that. Very good. And what are some other key points that you think people need to be prepared about? So the order is going to be your roadmap, right? Mm-hmm. So as soon as you're you're a parent, you've gotten the piece of paper that says this evaluation is going to be done, it should be your roadmap that has your rules. Correct. Um, there, there are kind of two documents that a parent should have and be very familiar with in an evaluation. The first one's the appointment order. Uh, and the second one is an evaluator should, uh, is required according to all of our ethical guidelines, to provide an explanation of how they're going to go about conducting the evaluation. And that would come directly from the evaluator after Generally. the order's been entered and signed and distributed. That's correct. Each evaluator should maintain their own set, call a memorandum of understanding. Sometimes they're called uh, evaluation agreements. They're called a lot of different things. For example, in mine, it talks about, you know, how I bill and what I bill for and what I don't bill for. Um, It talks about how I handle distributing a report. Um, It provides information on when to contact me in case of emergencies. The answer to that is never. Mm-hmm. It provides information on who I am, uh, what my licensing um, background is, and on um, the North, North Carolina Psychology Board and where to go if they want to file a complaint. You know, all these things that I need to communicate and have in writing so that the evaluees know not just what the evaluation is going to attempt to answer, but how the evaluator is going to go about their process. And will it also provide instructions or information about how to communicate with you, when to communicate with you, what to bring with them, roll nuts and bolts, what to bring with them to appointments, what releases they should expect to be asked for, what you're going to be reviewing? So not necessarily in the memorandum of understanding. That won't necessarily be in it because that's all dependent on the case and on the evaluation but there, there certainly should be discussion in there on how to get documents to review to the evaluator or how to communicate with the evaluator. 
And when you start one of these evaluations, the first thing you do with the evaluator should be to sit down and spend some time. I usually take 30 to 45 minutes and go over this document and, and explain to people, here's how appointments are going to work. You know, here's how we're going to schedule them. Here's how you get me information. Here's how you don't get me information. Here's the kind of thing that I might need. And then one of the key points that I hit on in these initial evaluation meetings, these orientations, as I call them, is that they don't, they're going to leave after this first appointment feeling like, I didn't get to talk about anything I want to talk about today. I have no idea what's coming up. I have no idea what he means by he wants documents. You can ask your evaluator all of that stuff, but your evaluator, as you go through the evaluation, should be letting you know, hey, a little bit ago, you mentioned that you took your car to the body shop because your ex shot it full of shotgun shell or shotgun buckshot. Mm-hmm. Why don't you give me that? So I have that document. Or you mentioned that you were at a work party and your neighbor saw you and your ex arguing and he saw your ex push you through a plate glass window. I'd like to talk to that person. Um, they'll let you know. So you shouldn't have to kind of try to be guessing all of this stuff at a time. What I always tell people is it's better to give me too much information than not enough. Um, and I will, one of my jobs, one of my responsibilities is to know what types of information I need to look at and what information I don't. And I think it's important for people to know an evaluation is not always going to involve any kind of diagnosis. Correct. Um, and it's certainly not necessarily going to involve any treatment. Definitely not. So to the extent that you make recommendations, they're defined by that order to some extent because the questions have already been laid out. This is what the court wants to know. But what happens if during the course of the evaluation, something presents itself to you as the evaluator that kind of doesn't fall in the line of what you were asked to speak to? What do you do about a situation where you're now seeing an issue that apparently nobody even realized might need to be brought. I mean, they didn't even know that it existed. So nobody's looking for this, but you're starting to see an issue. What is your obligation? Well, I like my appointment orders to state, for example, Dr. Knuth shall evaluate, but not be limited to evaluating X, Y, Z. You know, I, I like them to give me the sort of the, the freedom to evaluate these other issues that may or may not arise. And part of part of the training of an evaluator is to know how to look for alienation, how to how to look for potential relocation issues. So even if it's not in the court order, a good evaluator should know that. And the court order should state that, you know, they're allowed to do that. Or the appointment order should state that. And this is getting a little bit more into how to how does an evaluator operate. But the other option is if I the evaluator get a very prescribed, delineated court order that says evaluate for A and B and nothing else, and I encounter issue C, um, I have to decide what to do about that. And some of the options that are available to me are to write a letter to the attorneys or the judge and say, you know, I I have a concern. Please advise me. Um, And if the court says no, you know, stay in your lane then, you know, another op- option I have is in my report to say, by the way, I wrote a letter to the judge and the attorneys, check out Appendix D. That's the letter that I wrote um, just so that I feel like I've done what I need to do 
to kind of wash my hands, you know, say, look, mm-hmm. I, I brought this up. I think this could potentially be an issue. But ultimately what the court, capital C court, wants me to do is what I do. Say so this may be a, a stranger question, but if you're, what would your advice be to the people who are coming in, presenting themselves for these evaluations on how to make sure that they're helping you get the right information? And I don't necessarily mean that they're helping you prove them right or wrong, but how do they cooperate and engage in this process so that they have some confidence at the end that regardless of how the report comes out, that they were fully heard, fully, you know, considered. Because sometimes I think the participants can be their own worst enemies because they're so nervous or scared or or really feel like it's not a voluntary process because they're only there because some judges ordered them to be there. Right. Well, what I appreciate is when evaluees come to interview sessions with sort of a list of topics they want to cover. Um, and no, I don't necessarily go down that list with them. Sometimes what I tell people is, okay, I'm glad you got that list. Let's go through today because we're probably going to talk about those. But just to have that information handy can be helpful. Another thing that I always encourage my evaluees to do is to be as disclosing as they can, um, whether they think the information is beneficial to their particular case or against their case, just be as open and disclosing as you can because we all know nobody's a perfect parent. Everybody's got room for improvement. Um, Everybody has issues. And within the context of child custody litigation, I mean, I understand and I think everyone in my profession should understand that, that we're seeing these individuals at one of the worst times in their lives and getting an understanding of how these proceedings are affecting them as part of my job. And so the more disclosing somebody can be, the the more expeditious the evaluation will be. Uh, the less that I've got to go back and, and corroborate and, and triangulate. Because what I tell people when, when we sit down is I can't figure out what the truth is, you know, the capital T truth. But that's not my job. But what I what I am good at figuring out is when I don't have the full story. And so anything that I think I'm missing, we are going to sit down towards the end of this process we're going to follow up on it. And I tell them, look, that's not just you. That's, you know, your, your ex also. I'm, I'm having the same conversation with them. So the more disclosing they can be, um, the just the more efficient the whole process can be. And I think that it even includes things like people need to show up to their appointments a little early so they're not stressed. Yes, that's, that's a great bit of advice. And allow a little extra time on the end so they're not rushing or, you know, more worried about Oh, we've got, I mean, there is a time limit, but at some point, if you're really more focused on getting out to get back to work, right, it's going to present maybe not too much caffeine. <laughs> or maybe make sure you bring coffee. If that's what I've it got is. no problem with, with people coming to my appointments with food and drink, whatever they need. But generally, I think that it is a very intimidating um, prospect. But in reality, I think if people really do back up and understand, it's not really a mental health test, a diagnosis, grade scorecard, but what it is called. It's an evaluation. It's, it's right. literally trying to dissect some information that otherwise the court may not hear. I think, I think that's a very important point, that the, there's not a scorecard. There's not a, it's not a test where we, we give you a grade on right and wrong. It's what are your strengths and, and what do you need help with and how does that 
How is, how is that relevant for what's going on with the court? And I understand it should be intimidating. I think that if somebody comes into these evaluations with no concern and no nervousness, um, that's more concerning than someone who comes in a little bit nervous. Mm -hmm. uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Well, thanks for, for giving everyone a little bit more information in it. Not every case involves one. Um, and one of the reasons would be the cost. So I do want to quickly ask you, have you ever had one of these court-ordered evaluations covered by insurance? No. Right. I've never seen a policy cover it because it's not actually for a medical purpose. Roughly, what is your experience, not just for you, but in the field, for what someone should expect if a court has ordered an evaluation take place? What is the range in what it could what it could cost them? You know, I I usually tell people a, a full child custody evaluation runs between twenty and forty billable hours. And I, I bill differently than an attorney does, right? Mm -hmm. I don't bill for phone calls. Don't necessarily, I mean, phone calls, you know, to schedule mm -hmm. stuff. And, and evaluators charge between 200 and $500 an hour. All of that needs to be laid out in the evaluation agreement or the memorandum, like I mentioned before. And things that you can do to help decrease the amount of billable hours are to start gathering records ahead of time. You know, if you are seeing or have recently seen therapists, let them know, hey, somebody might be talking to you. Um, if school records might be an issue with, with the kids, go ahead and start collecting them now. I mean, that, those kinds of things can really cut down the amount of time that the evaluator needs to spend doing that. And the speed at which they, they produce the documents can become relevant um, in the evaluation. I, I had one where one party never produced their records, like everything was happening, interviews, and they just never produced and never produced. Essentially, by the time we got to the end of it, it ended up we couldn't use it. It became too stale. Hmm. I think that the party finally presented the document six months after the most recent appointment. And at that point, the evaluator felt like they were going to have to start the interviews almost over. Yeah, that's that. That's definitely feasible. I think that, you know, these evaluations are are highly complex and time-consuming, and they're not fast. Uh, but anything that evaluees can do to, to speed it up. Another thing that's really helpful, I alluded to this before, but if there are people that an evaluee wants the evaluator to interview, to talk to, whether it's a teacher or a neighbor or a friend or, or, or what have you, start that process as soon as you can, right? So if you know that you're going to go through child custody evaluation and you you're just you're certain that you want your neighbor from your last residence to talk to the evaluator call that person up and say hey I'm going to be evaluated someone's going to contact you so they know ahead of time because as you can imagine and as I would imagine getting an an email saying hi my name's Dr. Knuth I'm a forensic psychological evaluator I'd like to talk to you about this person somebody's going to read that and say oh my god I'm not going to talk to you. <laughs> I need to, you know, it, it's, it's nerve wracking. Yeah. Heads up. Well, thanks for giving us some additional information. There's so many types of situations out there and some people have representation and some people don't. And frankly, there's attorneys out there that have never had to have a case with a, an evaluation. And so they may not be as um, familiar with how to do it. And so I think it's important for individuals to know which questions to ask, um, whether they're represented or not. They, they have a role in this and they need to ask intelligent questions. Absolutely. So I really appreciate you 
coming in here and helping. So hopefully it'll help anyone who's confronting this go through it with or without representation. I'm happy to help. Thanks. So there you have it. Another neighborhood of Splitsville explored. There's still so much to learn here. So I hope you'll tune in to the next episode. While Splitsville is not a fun place to be, thankfully it is full of helpful people, valuable resources, and sound advice if you know where to look. See you next time. The insights and views presented in Welcome to Splitsville are for general information purposes only and should not be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. Nor does tuning into this podcast constitute an attorney-client relationship of any kind. If you're ready for compassionate and reliable legal guidance on your journey, contact Lee Sellers and her team at www.touchstonefamilylaw.com.